Hello, podcast friends. Such a delight to reconnect to my colleague from many moons ago, Peter Coleman, who just for the record is not my relative. Our paths crossed beginning sometime around 1995 at the International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution, uh, known as the ICCR at Teachers College, Columbia University, where we worked together on many cool initiatives until I left around 2003. My partner, Ellen Rader, with whom I had been delivering intercultural negotiation programs around the world, brought me into the center after connecting with Mort Deutsch, who is often referred to as a grandfather of conflict resolution, um, perhaps the grandfather of conflict resolution in the West. At the center, Ellen and I created the first certificate program in conflict resolution at Teachers College, which included collaborative negotiation, mediation, and then a growing list of related and interesting skill sets like using large group methods to resolve conflict and create systemic culture change. At the time of my arrival, Peter was a graduate student, Mort Deutsch's protege, and I watched him rise to where he is today as head of the center and now a well-respected social psychologist and researcher in the field of conflict resolution and sustainable peace probably best known for his work on intractable conflict. Prompted by the publication of his new book, The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization, I asked Peter to join me on the podcast for a conversation um, and draw from his book, his work, his life, anything that he feels is most relevant to address the role of gender, gender equality, gender transformation, and its connection to building a more peaceful, democratic, and sustainable world. He agreed, and we had a great conversation, which we now bring to you. As those of you who have followed me on this podcast know, I, along with many, believe that getting gender right, the role of gender, moving beyond outdated patriarchal structures, is the foundational challenge to building a much more peaceful, sustainable, and pleasurable planet for humanity and other living creatures. By way of example, allow me to repeat the poignant and on-target words of Shabana Basij Rasik, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, who is the co-founder and president of a school of leadership for women in Afghanistan, who said recently in the Washington Post, Educated girls grow to become educated women, and educated women will not allow their children to become terrorists. The secret to a peaceful and prosperous Afghanistan is no secret at all. It is educated girls. That statement makes me want to cry. What a tragic but accurate comment after the countless lives lost, the total pain for so many Afghans now, and the trillions my country just wasted in our two decades of war in Afghanistan, which, by the way, was also intelligently tracked by the Costs of War Project, uh, who we also had on this podcast a while back. Military or policing is not generally the best solution to conflict. Genuinely meeting people's needs is. It's not that complicated. But moving beyond the money that drives the choice of using force is. And we need to figure this out like yesterday. So here are some of what I call my favorite frames from Peter's in my conversation. Reminiscing about our early years at the ICCR and a moment when we had the room filled with teachers, guidance counselors, principals from all of the, I believe, 188 New York City schools, the largest school system in the country and, and maybe even the world, 
convened to learn critical negotiation and conflict resolution skills. It was awesome. The seeds that were planted in Peter to do a life's work in the field of peace and conflict, his reflections on himself as a seven-year-old, the influence of being raised by women, turbulent times in Chicago, the presence of Martin Luther King, the what he calls macro worry that began to build in his young awareness of social justice issues and the related conflict about them. A conference he convened to change the conversation from quote unquote negative peace, like addressing violence prevention and atrocity mitigation, to positive peace, like creating communities that will foster harmonious relations in which destructive conflict is far less likely to erupt. Kind of why I moved from doing mediation to more upstream organizational mediation using organization development methodologies or getting conflicting parties to focus on the positive thing they are trying to create versus the negative thing they are trying to avoid. Or like in the health field, focusing on what creates health and allows humans to flourish rather than having a disease orientation. And energy follows where we place our attention kind of idea, which is super important. Anyway, Peter's conclusion was that the conference was a huge failure because nobody wanted to talk about positive peace, with the exception of Doug Fry, who we also recently interviewed on this podcast. And another frame, how at that same conference, he had invited Abby Disney, the creator of the amazing film series, Women, War and Peace, who kept raising her hand and saying, I don't want to be the gadfly, but how can we talk about the mitigation of violence without talking about gender and men and their role in this? Peter and I shared our appreciation of the Sebastian Younger's 2016 book, Tribe, where he reported a profound observation of how early American settlers that had been captured by native tribes, when given the opportunity to return to the European colonies, they didn't want to go back without exception, because they preferred their lives among Native communities. And the frame that most stands out to me from the conversation um, is unfortunately a discouraging one. Peter tells the tale of working with the amazing Leigh McGowey, who I've mentioned many times on this podcast, to create a women, peace, and security program at Columbia that would provide technical and financial resources to some amazing younger women, I think mostly from Africa, who have been doing peace building work, like the badass Rhea Yuyata, who I interviewed a while back on this podcast. In spite of the huge need for the program and thousands of applications to it, the program sadly is closing this year. And that's also in spite of the fact that Lema is Lema, an amazing woman, a Nobel laureate, and if you don't know who I'm talking about, Watch Pray the Devil Back to Hell, a documentary created by Abby Disney about how Lema and other women, in a way that only women could pull off, brought an end to the Liberian Civil War. The program was not able to raise the $25 million needed to keep the program open in perpetuity, which to me is just a paltry sum given the amount of money that is flying around on this planet. And this was in spite of the fact that you couldn't have a more compelling person spearheading the program. Leigh McGowey, the poster child of the Melinda Gates Foundation of Oprah. And it's not because of any shortcomings on Lema's part, but much more about where our level of consciousness is about what's going to create a world that we all want to live in for the next number of centuries. 
It's a fact that reinforces my belief that we women really need to get our caca together when it comes to money and how it's spent. As I mentioned in my episode about women, money, and power with Barbara Stanny Hewson uh, a while back, at least in the United States and maybe even globally, um, women are coming into huge financial resources, a huge wealth transfer, and some say may have the majority of the investable assets in the 21st century. Um, this is undoubtedly mostly white women, I'm guessing, in the United States, sitting on so much dough that if we chose to actually use it in powerful ways, we could really make a big difference to the world our kids are inheriting. As Barbara said, and I say now, women's issues with using and taking charge of the resources we have has little to do with our capacity and a lot to do with our ambivalence about power. So, so many of us still want men to take care of money for us, and we, we have to stop doing this. Anyway, there are many more great frames from this conversation with Peter, including insights about women in negotiation, social constructs about the masculine, the feminine, and, and the, the connection to war, whether or not getting rid of binary gender pronouns is a peace movement, and what it's been like for him as a white, tall, good-looking dude working in a cauldron of conversation around conflict, peace, social justice, and identity. So thank you, Peter, and hope you all enjoy this super rich episode. So, okay, so I'll just jump in because I know you're busy and I really sure. thank you for the time. And, yeah, um, sure. But as I said, it's, it's been a pleasure to dive into all of your creations and impressive and valuable and uh, really thank you for all of your uh, service and contribution. And um, you and I go pretty far back. I think to, I was tracing yeah. it, I think to 1995. I don't know, I, I, I traced everything according to pregnancies and I was pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> I was pregnant with Jack and that was, or he was right. born in 1995, so it must've been then. <laughs> But just for the record, I, I was not the Peter Coleman involved in that process at all. Yes. And if you were going to say, I know, often been confusion about I that. know. If you weren't <laughs> going to say it, I was, it's because my ex husband's yeah. name was Peter. So it was, you know, yeah. uh, and we're sort of the same age. And so I think people still to this day, actually, somebody, yeah. this, this Columbia stu uh, graduate student said, Weren't you two married? I said, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Right, right, um, right. But anyway, but um, yeah, Ellen Rader and I had uh, created a, a basic practicum and then the advanced practicum. And we had a lot of fun and yeah. stimulation and um, really, really grateful for that time. When I think yeah. about it, I think of Grace Dodge Hall being filled with all kinds of people from every which place, you know, around the university and yeah. all around the world and talking about identity and talking about conflict and just a lot of good time, really interesting, great times, really. Yeah, um, it, was, it was a great time for me, too. I was a, a student when you met me, a uh, probably a doctoral student when you met me um, in the social work psych program there, but uh, was hanging around the center a lot and so got involved in various projects. I, I know I was involved in this school, high school, major high school project yeah. that you were involved in, yeah. and Ellen, I think, set up. And so it was a very formative time for me as well. Yeah, that was an amazing moment when we had representatives from every one of the city high schools in that yeah. room. 
like 188 yeah. high schools, right? Yeah. 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 It was amazing. It was extraordinary. And that's when I met James Williams, yeah. who became a close friend of mine. Right. And and I'm still very in touch with his sons. I'm going to actually going to see one of them. They both just started college. Wow. Beautiful. One is at Yale and one is at um, Duke uh, in engineering. And so I'm going to go down and in driving my son back, we're going to stop at Duke and see uh, Elijah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. And I had been starting the United Nations program and yep. then uh, to, to do negotiation and conflict resolution work. And then we brought that into the center, the International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution. And um, yeah, so I'm glad I was going to ask you if there were any particular highlights, but you just already shared it. So I'm glad to hear that. So it was a, it was a good time for you as well. It was a great time for me. I learned a ton. Yeah. Um, I you know I had never done any training or even teaching before that. So um, you know I, I know I was trained in your model by somebody. I think Ellen, maybe you both, probably at some point. Um, and then James and I did a bunch of work with that. And so yeah, it was a very formative uh, time for me. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm very yeah. grateful for it. Very grateful for it. Yeah. Um, so as you know, my audience, uh, and you know, when you work this internet world, you kind of have to be clear about your audience, but it's also, I've gotten clear about what my passions are and, and where I think I can contribute. But yeah. my the beginning of this podcast was really the best processes that I was could see out there that were building common ground. And then uh, then it became also focused on gender and um, looking at uh, you know, focusing for women and for people interested in the whole gender conversation and its connection to um, building a more peaceful planet. Yep. And then I asked you, because we're kind of getting more gray, both of us, and, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. it happens, it happens to the best <laughs> does, of us to um, put our heads together, kind of, if I could say, you know, with as humble global parents, if you, I don't know, I wonder if my kids would even go, oh, for Christ's sake, but... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, you know, to think together about, I don't know, just how to make this very complicated, you know, insights about making this very complicated world better for them. And um, you agreed. And uh, I mean, I think probably you feel like I feel it's been such an, an intense time, these fires and floods and the polarization. And I mean, I in the in the political season, the last political season, I I decided to not put any political signs out. I just put, I just painted one large kind of beautiful Black Lives Matter sign and put an American flag on it. And I live in a kind of a rural place and then watched somebody throw garbage at it for the next, I don't know how it went on for a long time. And I just thought, wow. okay, it's my penance just to go pick up the damn garbage. <laughs> you know? The poor soul that yeah. is throwing it, you know, it's like, whatever. Yeah. But anyway, I'm always interested in being hopeful and I'm not always, I got, I go up and down, yeah. but I, I feel like hopefulness is so important for our kids, particularly, I, you know, I, yeah. I, the way that the world, the ways on both of my children and younger people that I talk to, and I feel, you know, I just feel like, wow, it's just, I, so, um, they keep me honest, they keep me focused. Um, yeah. So basically I asked you to, 
uh, kind of a gen a, a broad question because you've written this great book called The Way Out. I think the tagline is how to overcome toxic polarization. And you've done a lot of really interesting work with Doug Fry, who I know has been on the podcast and some other people on uh, sustaining peace systems. And then you're a dad, you're a husband, you're a guy who's lived in the world for however many years you've you've been here. You're, uh, you're a U.S. citizen. You know, I don't know if those are all identities that you should have, but I'm assuming that. Yeah. And um, so I asked you to focus on this topic of gender and your insights and observations about the role it plays in creating a more democratic and, and peaceful world. And you agreed. And so here we are. Yeah. But I have one question before we start, because I yeah. uh, do ask everybody that I interview this question, which is just, um, you know, I don't know if you how you think about the term peace builder. If that's a term you relate to, uh, but I'm sure you can run with it. But what planted the seeds in you? A, not a long conversation, but a seed in you, an early seed, if you remember, that got you on the trajectory of what has brought you to where you are at this point in time? Well, I think it's a, probably a combination of, um, you know, family dynamics, because I had a fraught family, I had an alcoholic father who was a gambler. And so there was a lot of trouble and tension in my family. And I had a brother who was a seminarian studying to be in the priesthood. And he was a very soulful person. So I had these sort of different male figures, I think. And we were in the wake of all of that stuff. But I also lived in um, in Chicago, in the outskirts of Chicago in, uh, you know, in the 60s. And so I was there when there was a lot of tumult on the street. There was, you know, the Democratic Convention was there. There was a you know, major anti-establishment movements there. King, Martin Luther King came at right. some point and was sort of pivoting his strategy. So there was a lot happening on the streets that I would see. Mm. And so as a young child, both at home and in the community that was Chicago or communities that was Chicago, I think I was exposed to a lot of conflict and tension and movements towards social justice and challenges and so I do think it developed what, you know, they, they call it macro worry, you know, that it's hard to just kind of go through your life and not be mindful of what is happening in the world. And so I, I think that's where, you know, a lot of it started. Both. And, and how old do you think you were when you first had a macro worry? Well, I don't know if I want to say, you know, how young were you? You trace it back. You know, it was I was probably I left Chicago in 1970. So I was there, you know, when I was seven, eight, nine. Yeah. And I had, I had um, my siblings, two of my siblings were older, about 10 years older than me. So they were in high school, they were more involved in movements. And, you know, one was sort of a hippie and the other was a seminarian. And then I was very connected to them, their music, their fashion and their, you know, and their politics, I think. So, so definitely seven years old, I was sitting with a lot of those issues and trying to make a seven-year-old sense of those issues. Yeah. Yeah. I see the guitars in the background. Do you, do you play the guitar? Yeah, I do poorly. My, all of my family play guitar. Several of them mm. have been or are professional musicians of various sorts. Mm. And I, you know, I bang these things. Yeah. 
But for myself at home. Yeah, yeah. I'm sort of the same. I actually I, I actually sort of gave it up recently because I had too many hobbies and I couldn't pull off the business. You know, so I was like, okay, <laughs> no more guitar. I'm too bad at that. And I live in this community where there are so many talented people. It's just like, oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, but, that's true. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, so um, to the core of this conversation, yeah. you know, basically in doing this podcast, uh, so I was I was thinking about interventions to build common ground and, you know, different kind of facilitation techniques. And I was interviewing people about that. And then, you know, I've been heavily trained in Gestalt. And so I was like thinking about you know, scanning the planet, like what are the big figures that stand out to me? Figure ground, you know, it's a simple idea of the far yeah. you're right. And, you know, the things that smack me in the face are climate change. Boom, you know, big time. This struggle between authoritarianism and democracy, which just yeah. seems to be maybe the struggle of our day. I, uh, and then yeah. the the huge gender imbalance that still persists on the planet. Yeah, the fact that as some people would call it, you know, patriarchy just won't die as a as a system. Yeah, and I I, I think those things are related myself. Um, but I wanted to, and I like I like uh, Carol Gilligan has this saying: um, "Feminism is the movement to free democracy from patriarchy," which I, I like that uh-huh. <laughs> that yeah. phrase. But in yeah. in just finishing the way out and and all the work you've done on peace systems and all of it, I'm just wondering, you know, your thoughts and insights on this topic. On the topic of gender and yeah, peace. and its connection to creating a a different kind of world order that actually is beyond. When I say peace, and probably the when you say peace, we're talking about a more active peace, a more a, a place where we don't have armed conflict as a way of resolving differences. Yeah, and um, you agree with that phraseology, or? Um, yeah, I mean, I would. I think peace is. That's more of negative peace, and I think that's an, a critical component. I also think that you know when we study peaceful societies, part of what we emphasize is that they ultimately grow a different culture, and it's a culture that's a more tolerant culture and a more harmonious culture. Um, and they they're not without their problems and tensions, but they manage them constructively so they don't use violence or they use less violence to manage them. So. So I think it's a combination of both, you know, what Galtman would say is positive peace and negative peace, negative peace being the absence of violence and positive peace being both the presence of a sense of justice for different groups, but but also a sense of, of harmony and connectedness and mm-hmm. interdependence, which um, which also oftentimes gets lost in the conversation of peace. Yeah. And, and sounds like to me, like sometimes I think if I have to say what's the opposite of patriarchy, I kind of say pleasure, you know, like a much more pleasure, pleasurable world. Like a, um, yeah. I was reading this um, book called Tribe uh, by Sebastian Younger. Sebastian Younger, yeah. And he was talking about, all, he, he was citing all this research he'd done about uh, Native, Native Americans um, that had been uh, captured by English settlers at the early parts of the country. And all of them, without exception, apparently went back to the tribe when they were able to. And then the reverse, all the settlers that were captured by the natives when they were given the opportunity to return to um, the colonies, they didn't want to go. 
Yeah. It's kind of like, wow, that's. Yeah, that's profound. No, really I agree. I love that book. I thought that was, it was a very smart book about, you know, the power of tribe and tribalism and, um, and also just the implications of wealth in distancing us from right. one another and moving us away from needing other people because we can hire police and firemen and whatever, you know, right. I think that's a, yeah, that's a profound statement. Yeah. So anyway, so I don't know if that's too broad a question, but yeah, your thoughts about gender and its role in all of this. Well, yeah. So, um, you know, to some, my, my mind flashes probably because of the intro back to my, I was raised by women, you know, because my father went away. My oldest brother was a seminarian. So he was kind of off in God, you know, world doing that. Uh, and so I was really raised by my mom uh, who held us together. There were five children. Where did and, you uh, fall in the lineup? I know you, you were younger, but you know. I was like second from last. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and my sister, I had a sister whose name at the time was Vivian, who's now Cookie, was uh, very maternal and cared for us as well. So they really raised me. And, and so the power of women was very, is very resonant for me from the, my origins. You know, I survived because of them, mm -hmm. I survived some difficult times. But um, in the peace world, you know, I, I've learned so much from from experiences uh, with my colleagues, you know, I have to shout out. So I work, I've worked for several years with Abby Disney, who is the social justice activist mm -hmm. and a mm -hmm. feminist. And um, I, what I'm remembering is uh, in 1998, um, Jeff Sachs and a guy named Gary Belkin, who's a physician and I <clears throat> held a big, <clears throat> pardon me, forum at Columbia to try to basically change the conversation around peace from just violence prevention and atrocity mitigation to promoting harmonious, cooperative, you know, relations in societies. And because part of what I argue is that we don't think that side, we don't go there. We really, it's all about prevention of harm, um, which of course is critical, but it's insufficient to sustaining peace. And so, we convened this day-long forum with philanthropists and academics and practitioners to talk about peace and changing the subject. It was an abysmal failure in my view because, <laughs> you know, there were people there who were very smart about genocide and atrocities, and that's what they had to talk about, and wow. that's where their passion was. And it was really hard to get people to change, of course, with the exception of Doug Frog. I had met Doug, and he was there, and he mm -hmm. could speak to peaceful societies mm -hmm. and what they represented. But um, I had also invited Abby Disney because she was becoming more involved in peace work. She had met and sort of supported Lema Bowie and 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 I did that amazing was, uh, series, I think, called Women, War and Peace. I think she was at the heart of that. Yep, two uh, two series of things that they did on PBS, and then and she did a film with Le about Lema right. and about the women's peace. They pray uh, pray the devil back to hell. Pray the devil back to hell. Mm -hmm. um, so she had been becoming more and more involved in that. So I had invited her to this forum. And, um, you know, there were a couple of times in the process of the day where Abby would raise her hand and say, you know, this is a, a room of 40 people or whatever, or something like that. Also in Grace she, Dodge Hall? <laughs> no, it was in Learner Hall okay. at Columbia. Okay. It was a bigger space. Mm -hmm. But um, Abby would raise her hand and say, you know, 
how can we talk about the mitigation of violence without talking about gender and men and their role in this? And like, why can't, how can we not go there? And there would be silence, mm. right? And even the women that were there, there were some very esteemed women there, mm. couldn't sort of crack that. And once or twice, or maybe even three times, Abby came back and said, I hate to be the gadfly, but I'm gonna, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. what about this? And it just had no traction. And so when, when Mort Deutsch and I were there and we left there, we realized that was kind of a waste of time. They can't really do that. So this is a while so, ago. This is before, uh, when, this well, is in Mort 1998. Still, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Before Mort died, mm-hmm. when he was still around mm-hmm. and active. And so we decided to edit a book on the psychology of sustaining peace, because we figured at least we could try to find a group of psychologists or psychologically minded people to uh, write about this. So we edited a book and we invited Lema and Abby to write a piece um, on gender and peace. I have to uh, check. I haven't seen that. I have to check that out. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fantastic chapter. Very thoughtful. It had, you know, it had the context of Liberia, but it, it made other more generalizable points. And then, you know, so I, we worked, I've worked with Lema and Abby. We, at some point around, well, right after Lema won the Nobel Peace Prize, I was in South Africa at a meeting and she was the keynote. And so she and I went out to lunch and I sort of said, what are you going to do when you grow up? Cause she was like 40, just won the Nobel Peace Prize had at that point, like six children living in Monrovia and Ghana, and then sometimes in New York. And I sort of said, what do you want to do with this? And, and she said, well, I, what I would love to do is really institutionalize the role of women of local women peace builders mm-hmm. and the critical work that they do in so many ways around safety and security and peace. And I would like to have a serious institution that would study that, mm-hmm. take it seriously. And mm-hmm. she had been in conversations with various universities about this. And, but I knew that she lived in New York a lot. Her kids, some of her kids were going to school here. And and I said, well, you should consider Columbia. I can't believe she was doing all this and had six children. I don't know. <laughs> I, just, I don't know. Yeah. Don't get it. But anyway. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, they have a, a, a an African community model of family. Right. So right. there's a lot right. of people around, but definitely it was, you know, and had lived through two civil wars. So, right. you know, unbelievable. that's the context. Um, but so that was her vision. And we started to put our heads together and brought Abby in and then met, eventually met with Lee Bollinger and, you know, the provost of Columbia and the president of Columbia, Lee Bollinger, and started this process that took a long time to even get traction on. And Lema was a Nobel Peace Laureate, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but. And what was it? What, what were the obstacles when you say that it was at the university? Was it? Money it's was mostly it? money. It um, always is, right? <laughs> always is. It always is. But it was, you know, principally money. But also, you know, I mean, again, Columbia is a research university. It was a male, you know, it was a boys' college initially, so it has its own baggage in terms of embracing something radical like this, mm-hmm. which is institutionalizing. The vision was to institutionalize a program on women, peace, and security that would privilege the expertise of local women peace builders around the world in 
you know, Africa initially, but in America as well, and really um, highlight their experience and expertise so that they're the, the experts. It's not me going in to teach them about peace. It's them uh, sharing their insights and then communicating them and then working with, you know, Columbia students to document what they do and to be able to write, you know, articles or videos. Actually, I, or, I interviewed one of them. I say somebody who came through that center, uh, Rhea Yuyata, who's uh, uh-huh. in South Sudan, is just a really kick-ass woman, really amazing person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were all extraordinary people. And, you know, so, but again, this was a radical thing. This is not Columbia University, yeah. you know, fodder. This is very different. So, Part of it was just communicating to the trustees and to the president's donor group and whatever, what this could be, Mm -hmm. the importance of it, um, and how it fit in some place like Columbia. And even donors would come back to us and say, we're going to give money to Columbia University for women peace builders. Like, what are you talking about? You know, so there were all kinds of obstacles to it. Because there's a a female arm of Columbia or did it have to do with that or no? It had to do just being, you know, being. What's the female? Wait, I'm just suddenly blanking on. What's the female? The the other college? Uh, oh, Barnard. 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 Sorry, just. Like, no, not because of that. Just because, um, you know, again, in like women, local women peace builders, and Columbia University are different universes. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, how do I support local women by funding something at Columbia University? Like, what are you talking about? So there was all kinds of challenges to it. Um, and some of it was sexism, some, you know, just hard one, hard change sexism. Some of it was um, just bureaucratic challenges that happened with launching anything in a place like Columbia. But most of it was money mm-hmm. um, from the very beginning. And so so part of what I learned as we, you know, because Lema was able to get generous gifts from Oprah and from Melinda Gates and some other donors, but we were just, you know, constantly working on the money mm. to try to get it. The, the vision was to underwrite it uh, so that it could be endowed so that we could fund these women because they didn't have the funding to do this. And so we, it all had to be underwritten in order to be sustainable. Um, you know what I can't couldn't... figure out? There's some research and it's significant. I mean, if you Google it, you'll see it. But that apparently in the 21st century in the United States, I don't know about globally, uh, that women hold the purse strings for more of the assets in the United States or will mm-hmm. within the mm-hmm. 21st century. Yeah. And I keep wanting to still I'm, st- I, I, I'm about to recheck out that those statistics, because honestly, I think sometimes, you know, money doesn't give you power, but money sometimes reflects women's ambivalence about power. And I think a lot yeah. of those people that have access to that money, they're often letting men manage it. And there are significant things that women, not that men wouldn't fund something like this, they yeah, could, yeah, but that yeah. women, I, I sometimes I think, if that research is true, women could do yeah. significant things by actually yeah. taking charge of the resources that they have access to. Um, yeah, no, I think that's true, but I think that all women are not the same, and some women still have internalized patriarchy and the yeah. who's really in charge, and certainly women of a certain generation are more likely to have that, and many of those women have access to these these resources. So, um, you know, again, it is about what you can imagine and what you can't, like what isn't doesn't 
compute for you. So um, what I was going to say is that I was exposed in some ways through this process, through meeting Lema, learning of what she does, learning of the Liberian movement, and then these various initiatives that they did, because they they did launch this very impressive you know project, which is a, a logistical nightmare to have, you know, fifteen or twenty women peace builders from across Africa. They put out a call to invite women. And I can't remember the number, but there was at least a thousand applications that came in wow. like within a month wow. of women across the continent. And they were able to choose 15, you know? Uh, so it was challenging in that way because the need was profound. The interest, the resonance was profound, but also, you know, the first, I think it was the first um, event that was held in Kenya was the weekend that there was a bombing in Kenya, mm-hmm. in, uh, in Nairobi, which, you know, so you have these women from all over the place coming to this, this capital, and then you have this event happen, and they had to regroup, you know, so there, there were mm-hmm. many, legit, and, or that, or getting people to come to America and getting them visas, you know, so you name it. So there were multiple challenges to this project. Um, The project had a good director who was fantastic in managing a lot of the logistics of this. But ultimately, what I I learned, just to answer your question in a long-winded way, is the challenges of even understanding the the roles women play in conflict zones, in pre- and post-conflict zones, in places with, you know, very few, mostly scarce resources in keeping the community safe, in doing it in logical and in kind ways, and in ultimately, you know, building the infrastructures of peace and, and then sometimes actually mobilizing that in a peace movement like Liberia. And often in sometimes very violent contexts. Oh, in an extremely mm-hmm. violent context with major violence against children and women. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're recipients of mm-hmm. this and attempting to manage this. So, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I did a deep dive into that world and getting a sense of those realities and ultimately what can be learned from these extraordinary women in their journeys and, and in their practices. And what I found is, again, my experiences at LEMA, a Nobel Peace Prize laureate with an extraordinary track record networked around the world, respected around the world, is the poster child for the, you know, the Gates Foundation, gatekeepers, events, and, you know, can't raise money. We just couldn't get the money. And so we got these initial gifts from Oprah and from Get the Gates Foundation, but all the other champions, and I could name names, but I won't, but there were several major champions who just ultimately didn't deliver. And so, you know, and, and Lim is not a, she's not a fundraiser. She's an organizer yeah, yeah. and that's her passion. And yeah. so that, you know, meeting with some owner of a football team and asking for money is not her gig, you know? So this mm-hmm. was painful for her to sit in rooms with these people and, and make the case, even when we'd done all the prep work to set it up. But, um, 
But I do think that kind, but what happened to this program ultimately, and the program is ending. It is. Uh, well, the WPS program will end in about six months. Um, this, is a, this is a discouraging story. Oh, it's a discouraging mm-hmm. story, and it, but it's reality. Mm-hmm. And again, there are layers of why it was so challenging. Many of them we were willing to fight and navigate and mm-hmm. figure out some resilient strategy to move forward. But money ultimately was our undoing because because this is not a program that you can just kind of run from grant to grant. You have to have enough of a foundation that Lema can get supported, that the staff can get supported, and that the women who are involved um, can be supported. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, we you just can't do it. Right. We've got to be able to pay the people, pay the faculty, and the, the women were the faculty, right. you know. Right. So it was our attempt to kind of flip their understanding of, and, and, you know, one of the reasons that Lema wanted to do in the first place is that her feeling was that many of these academic programs that are on, about women are celebrating the elite women, you know, the, the Hillary Clinton peace builders right. or the Lema peace builders, you know, but not the women that are on the ground doing the work that she's so passionate about and familiar with. So our attempt was really to try to even flip that, even in the women peace security world, say, yeah, there are, you know, because she would have people, organizers of these programs come to her and say, how do you find these women? <laughs> and Leva would say, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. You know, they're you know? everywhere. So I was deeply schooled and around the women, what they offered, the challenges, the extraordinary lives they lived. And then also with these experiences around around exclusion and and racism and Africanism and and sexism that combined with Lema to, I think, ultimately be major obstacles to, you know, Lema is a provocateur. She's an activist. She says provocative things to the UN. She speaks truth to power that's in her. So does that play some role? Is it easier if you're you know, deferring to the patriarchy, maybe that's not her thing. So part of it was probably her, but most of it, I think, was really just what she represents. And so people couldn't imagine giving, you know, we didn't need that much money, depending, you know, if you look at philanthropy, we needed probably $25 million to underwrite this thing in perpetuity and to be able to wow. have a good programming. Yeah. Um, and that's not that much money. Not that much money. Um, but it was, again, something that just never was forthcoming. And at some point we had to say, you know, we're spending down what we have, we right. can't. So, so, yeah, so that was very discouraging. But as, you know, as I said, part of what I became more familiar with is the research on when women are in the at the table, peace, treaties are more sustainable, right? Mm-hmm. They're more likely to happen. They're more right. likely to be sustained, you right. know? And that's these handful of women right. that get selected into this men's club to have these conversations. So I guess I just, I learned more about the, the, the iceberg, you know, not just the tip of the people that we see, but all of the work that's done every day, tirelessly, without any attention or celebration or recognition. And, you know, and then we, we tried to go into the belly of the beast at, at Columbia University, uh, you know, an esteemed research university and really do it there and do it right. And even networking 
with the feminist scholars at Columbia was challenging. How so? Because because it's again, it wasn't what they envision as feminist work, right? It's it was different. What P and and con- you're talking? What was it? Conflict resolution, peace building. What was Lema's vision of local grassroots yeah. recognition celebration? Um, you know, was not academic. Wasn't yeah. typical research. Yeah. It wasn't the researcher going in and right. studying the subject and coming right. back out with ideas. It was this very different model of education of of status and of knowledge creation and knowledge where the knowledge sits. Um, And I think, you know, ironically in academia, that's a a hard nut to crack. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think we, we, you know, made some dents and, you know, but um, the last year or so has been a very frustrating and disappointing time for the program. So, I, you know, I, I, I guess what I've just been trying to glean from this is the, the lessons that I've learned about gender and peace. Um, clearly, you know, if you look at the research of the statistics on men and violence, you know, men are perp- major perpetrators. Of the, most the major. Of- I mean, I, I would say, again, I'll quote Carol Gilligan, you know, patriarchy creates violence in men and silence in women and yeah. you know no not helpful for men i mean as a as a mother of a beautiful soul son i will say i yeah. think that that system you know making boys into little soldiers and all the different ways that that happens yeah. and taking away their humanity early in so many ways that is yeah. is really painful um yeah. But my focus often is is like, you know, helping women gain more confidence that what we do, what we say, that our voices really make a difference and that yeah. we need to to lean in. I mean, I hate using that phraseology, yeah. but yeah. but stand into it like like um, Bill Yeri pulled out a interesting tip. I don't know where he found this, but that's apparently the practice of dueling apparently came to an end because women started laughing at the practice. Now, I don't know how oh, a- accurate that is, but I think it's a great little anecdote, you know? That's great. And then, um, you know, I, apparently around the signing of the Declaration of Independence, when Ben Ben Franklin was taking some of his inspiration from the Iroquois Confederacy, I, I understand. Again, I'm not mm. a whatever. Yeah. And But the, the, the male the tribal folks that arrived, their first comment was, well, where, where are the women? Because... Yeah they would not make any take any great undertaking without first consulting with the grandmothers, you know, that that, and which kind of gets into, uh, you know, some of the work you've been doing around peace systems and, and because sometimes, Oh my God, Peter, sometimes I just think, Oh God, have we made any progress in Western society? Like I live on Wappinger Lenape land. I'm super aware, like where I live, like, um, I don't know, 50 years ago, you were not allowed to sell land to anybody that wasn't Caucasian. Literally, Mm -hmm. that was. And so watching those transitions happening around land in the Hudson Valley and the awareness among many that obviously Native people, a lot of what happened with Native were not perfect, but but they had a very different kind of, they do have a different kind of social structure, which is much more egalitarian and promotes uh, much more peace and you contrast that with what now what is it two people in this country two men in this country own more than 40 percent of the rest of the country 
Yeah. I mean, it's it's um, obscene. It's obscene. It's craziness. Yeah. There's no way that you can have democracy. Yeah. So I I guess that one of the things we could turn to is, and I don't know if, what you might have to say about this, but um, is I do want to convey to women because they are really the audience that I'm most reaching out to at the moment. You know, confidence that how they lead, how they negotiate, how they use themselves, in fact, does matter. And mm-hmm. it's tricky. Like uh, so many of the women I've worked with are, you know, they they accommodate, they avoid, they do all uh-huh. the things that you might expect them to do. They they are frightened by, you know, in a big scheme, they get frightened by male violence, you know, or the prospects of violence. And so they just... Yeah. But I think how we negotiate adds up. I do believe how, how we negotiate adds up. And, Absolutely. And so I'm curious if you have any thoughts in, you know, comments for women about the importance about how women choose to negotiate. And of course, that's a big, broad, but, you know, the strategy they use, whether it's collaborative, whether it's adversarial, you know, how they yeah. choose to use themselves. And yeah. Yeah. So but have you by chance had Deborah Kolb on your no, I podcast yet? I yeah. So Deborah Kolb. Um, has studied women negotiation, yeah, yeah. gender negotiation yeah, yeah. for a long time. And, and um, you know, as a colleague of mine, I've done a little work with her. She too has spoken a lot about this. And I have a student uh, who graduated last, did her, finished her dissertation. Um, her name is Asha Gibson. She's an African-American woman living in Ghana right now. We had a Zoom dissertation defense over the summer. And her research was on Um, intersectionality and women's negotiations around their salaries. Hmm. And part of what she writes about is, you know, what we know from the study of complex systems is, you know, initial conditions matter. When you negotiate your salary for your first job, it sets a pathway to your wealth for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And so part of what she summarizes is the profound importance of women recognizing their value advocating for themselves. You probably know this research that, but in negotiations, women are much more assertive and likely to advocate for more in a negotiation when they're negotiating for others, Mm -hmm. when they're negotiating for their staff or, Mm -hmm. but when it comes to I don't only know it, I've experienced it (laughs) firsthand. (laughs) Right. Okay. Right. So again, you know, but what Asha was writing about, she was, you know, interested in intersectionality and being a black woman and how those things together would create, you know, anxiety in women and affect their negotiations, um, something called stereotype threat. But um, what she was citing was the critical importance of these these early negotiations, you know, is that. And I might even take it back. I mean, I for me, uh, it it was profound for me to actually I mean, again, I may be at above my pay grade, but you know it seems like looking at the work of uh, William Urey and some other, and and Doug Fry and, and Robbie Roberts, number of people that uh, that we have a much longer ch- time on this planet of being more collaborative, way longer, um, way 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 longer than no. than coercive, warlike. Uh, that always surprises people. Still, you know, I'm always yeah. like people is like you're kidding. That's not accurate. And I say, I, I don't know, I'm reading an awful lot of academics and I'm not them, but you know, they're pretty reputable. And, yeah. but, but, um, you know, and in those settings, women were 
absolutely were equal in many of them. and were revered. There were goddesses. They were, you know, sure. all yeah. the, the ways that, that Christianity came in and took over pagan relics that were very celebratory of the divinity of women. And this may seem silly. Oh, well, I don't know. It's not silly. Knowing your divinity makes a difference in how you show up at the negotiating table, really, knowing uh, that you're not yeah. less than, that actually you yeah. are absolutely equal to, uh, yeah. and that somehow we've we've created this dynamic of this, what my ex-husband says is just like this pyramid structure with, you know, white guys on top, white women underneath, you know, well, this is in the United States, yeah. you know, yeah. and that um, that that culture really, it's like a hex in terms of... Yeah how much you're able to ask, how much you're able to receive, yeah. how much you think you're worthy. Yeah. And then not, that's just internal. Of course, there's a yeah. lot of external and then stuff. It's it's how also, you're perceived by others. Right. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. It's also yeah. that that's also part of the game. Um, yeah, no, that's right. Uh, you know, uh, so Doug Fry wrote a book called, I think it's War, Peace and Human Nature, which is, I think, his last book. And it's um, it's a great book because he does summarize, you know, he's made this case before, but he summarizes archaeological evidence um, that cites that humans' history with war, which is group on group violence, you know, at a certain level, uh, only goes back, the evidence of it only goes back about 10,000 years. Mm -hmm. And yet humans, you know, various types of, of humans have been around for 2 million years, Homo sapiens for about half that, but nevertheless, you know, a long time. And 10,000 is this like, you know, this past weekend. Um, and that's when we organized for war. And that was mostly because of stuff, you know, that we were before that human hunter gatherers, we'd be in these small teams, we'd go to the food, we'd change with the weather. And so yes, those relations were more egalitarian and more cooperative, highly interdependent, because like, you know, we were a tribe and we needed each other fundamentally. And it wasn't until these groups stopped in places and said, oh, the salmon fishing is excellent here. Let's settle here. Started to do agriculture, started to own land, you know, hold the land. That's when intergroup violence uh, really came up. So it's really related to stuff, you know, having more and less stuff. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, sometimes I think about it, like, I like Wikipedia. That probably isn't your thing as a, as a, <laughs> That's a fancy researcher. Uh, I, actually, I respect Wikipedia. It I love is, Wikipedia. Um, I give let me just money. say this about Wikipedia. There was a study done recently, which I think is fantastic, which shows that when in the process of Wikipedia de uh, developing content on a particular issue, when you have more polarized membership uh, on, on a political issue, the content is much better hmm. because... Wikipedia will throw you off Wikipedia if you spout a bunch of nonsense or vitriol or make stuff up. So they hold you accountable to certain norms. But when you have extreme points of view, adhering to those norms, you get better content. Oh, well, so that's sort of a support for the our adversary system, you know, our litigation system. And that's kind of the premise of it, you know. Uh, if there's norms and rules mm -hmm. to some degree, yeah. I mean, again... I don't know if it necessarily equates to justice, but it definitely equates to better content around complicated issues when you have very different points of view. Anyway, but I was impressed by that because I know that there it is an attempt to democratize knowledge yeah, yeah. and resource, you know, what people go to for references. And I think it's evolved 
but they did, unlike Facebook and Twitter and these other places that don't have strong norms about what you can and can't do, you know, they're starting to introduce them. Wikipedia has been doing that for a long time. So you can have dissent and conflict and difference, and ultimately it can result in better content if they adhere to the norms. Yeah, it's cool. But anyway, my point was is that when you when you search masculinity, you know, war, whatever, you come up with Mars was the god of masculinity and war. Yeah. They actually, you know, the, the Greeks like equated those two things, which is like you think, yeah. oh my God, how long back have we been <laughs> creating yeah. these these constructs that are um, yeah. pretty rough on men and women alike? Yeah. Although then Lysistrata came in and and boycotted the warriors, and that worked pretty well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, I think it was really maybe inspirational to Lema. I never asked her, but, you know, do you know who yeah. she was? They There were actually um, some of the, I don't know what her familiarity was with Lysistrata, but definitely they used sex boycotts as a component as one of the strategies. Yeah. yeah. So let's see. Um yeah, I'm I'm interested in, you know, inspiring women, empowering them, inspiring everyone to be rethinking. I mean, I think sometimes this whole uh, the, I have a they them uh, child. And uh, huh. that's been an interesting um, process for me to be using yeah. non-binary pronouns. And yeah. um, for, for I, all of us over 60. Oh, God. It, Initially, it's, it's... I will say I was really frustrated. It's like and then recently they said to me. Uh, because I really was failing. Uh, like I would see them, yeah. I, I would slip and call her or she, her. Right. And they specifically called me and said, mom, you know, it would really make a lot of difference to me if you could get this right. Um, yeah. And I realized that the problem was, is that I was going to my friends, you know, and talking about my daughter and they are a daughter, um, uh -huh. but talking about my daughter as she, her, and then uh -huh. going back to my daughter and trying to switch to they, them, and that was not yeah. working. No, and so right. I now have been using they, them consistently across the board. And yeah. what's been interesting is all the conversations that I've been having with, which is exactly her, their point, <laughs> that yeah. I would become a better ally for what they were standing for. But I get it. Getting out of the binary structure, to me, I've begun to think this is a peace movement. And yeah. I don't know what you think about that. But the more I thought about it, I thought patriarchy as a system feels very comparable to the military industrial complex. I begin yeah. to think, are these the same thing, really? Uh -huh. And I don't know if you yeah. have any thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a justice movement. I do think that um, recognizing differences in gender orientation and, and identity, um, I think it is a movement and, and an attempt at inclusiveness and recognition of the challenges of, of people that are born or feel in different ways and trying to respect and create safer environments for them. So I think it is a, a justice movement. And I think justice, as King would say, you know, no justice, no peace. I think it's a foundational component of peaceful society. Did he start that phrase? Was that him? I think so. I mean, I know it's it, it's a quote of King, but I don't know if he started it. But um, but let's say so for now. Yeah, yeah, okay. Fair <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You know, maybe it was Lysistrata. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> but um, and by the way, I I do have to say, just in terms of our field, peace conflict field, 
Um, I have become um, a tireless champion of Mary Parker Fowler. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, because, and I right. know you know who she is, but mm-hmm. everybody else, nobody else does. Right. You know, right. Still to this day, right. often even in our field, um, Mary Parker Follett, who was an American social worker and was an extraordinary woman and a visionary around constructive conflict and around power sharing. And, and she worked at a time in organizations when there was a ton of violence around around union formation and companies fighting back. And so it was a very tense time in business and industry. And she was a visionary of another way. Um, and I write, I quote her in the beginning of this book, The Way Out, because I do think she, I saw that. she was yeah. so pivotal mm-hmm. in offering men and anybody in business and us as a society an alternative way to think about power relations, about conflict, about engaging with one another social, you know, in terms of our social relations and get so, so little attention, but um, she is one of, one of my heroes. So Terry real is somebody who I really have taken and I know we're, I'm watching the time. I know I got to let you go pretty soon. Um, But Terry real is somebody that he's a family therapist and yeah, I know, I know him. He's a pretty interesting uh, person. I've found a lot of what he, he's a great writer. He's a great thinker. Yeah. But um, he's writing a book at the moment, um, or he's written it, I don't know yet, but it's coming out basically on the trauma of the, I don't know how he phrases it, um, the perpetrators, the falsely empowered, you know, the people that are in the one up position in a mm-hmm, one up, mm-hmm. one down kind of uh-huh. model, uh, which yeah. are often men and which are often white men in our society. Yeah. And I um I don't know. This is a personal question, but you know, you've been in the like the cauldron of conflict in the conflict field. You know, how has it been for you to navigate that in your negotiation style, your conflict style as a white, tall, good-looking guy? Um, well, so um I'm probably very different in different areas of work. The place that it's been my identities have been the biggest lightning rod in diversity work. Um, and I've done a lot of practice around diversity, you know, doing DEIAJ reform within institutions in my own college and university and outside in the world. And, and when I do that work, I am, I'm the, I'm the representative of the oppressor, you're just getting projected on all over the place <laughs> immediately. Um, and so, you know, uh, you can't even know, probably can't, open, no matter what you say, probably doesn't make any difference in terms of what gets projected. Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. But, um, you know, and so that's the space that has been the most fraught around this. And, um, but it's also been, you know, I, I write, there's a, a anecdote in the book about, um, when I first came on faculty at TC and I was asked to co-chair or I was asked to chair a big diversity, there'd been a big crisis at TC around diversity and the president was kind of panicking. And I wrote him and said, this is a great opportunity for you to do real reform. And he said, okay, great. You do it. <laughs> you chair it. And I was a non-tenured white guy coming into this new position. Mm. And it was a, you know, kind of a terrifying moment because on the one hand, I was a conflict person. I was a social justice person. I believed in this work. On the other hand, I'm like the worst person to do this. <laughs> so I negotiated with him that I would do it under certain conditions. Mm-hmm. One was that I needed to have a, a co-chair 
color and actually Dennis Chambers. Oh, do you remember I love Dennis? Dennis? Oh my God, I love Dennis. Dennis was my coach here. Mm-hmm. And we spent this summer in this committee. Just just for listeners, I think Dennis is Jamaican, uh, Black American, but I think of Jamaican, I think he's West Jamaican American. Jamaican American, uh, was a security guard. So he was a union member at the college, was also uh, taught martial arts, had right. his own school right. in martial arts but also did our courses and was interested in conflict, right. you know, very eclectic. And very, a beautiful human being, beautiful yeah, human. Yeah, very yeah. soulful person. So he and I co-chaired this thing, but it was, you know, it was a summer of hell for me because what I said to the president is the only way I'll do this is if you invite everybody who are the most outspoken and angry members of our community who are raising issues right now, including some of the faculty and I had to kind of fight with this president as a non-tenure person to say, I won't do it otherwise, mm-hmm. because otherwise I'm your puppet. Mm-hmm. And what are we doing here? Mm-hmm. So, um, but that room with those people was a, a really hard summer yeah, I because I daily got, you know, what the hell do you know, mm-hmm. white boy? Mm-hmm. I remember one of the older faculty of color saying to me, who the hell are you to do this work? Mm-hmm. You know, shame on you. I agree with you. I There's agree with you. Nowhere to go. <laughs> but we did it. We did good work. We made progress. We institutionalized some changes. It was really important. It was a very painful experience. I didn't sleep much. I think I lost seven pounds mm-hmm. that summer. I just couldn't eat, mm-hmm. but it was worth it. And mm-hmm. so, you know, so I, that's, when issues of identity are certainly at the forefront of, of any dispute that I'm involved in, or I have to take it on the chin. I have mm-hmm. to sort of see, you know, ideally if I'm surprised at it, I'm an idiot because, you know, of course it comes up, but I've recognized it as in some ways, you know, again, often the hardest thing I have to do is just sort of sit and take heat and try to eventually use it as energy to change what we're trying to change. Mm -hmm. But, um, but it, it's always been hard and exhausting, but, you know, as I wrote in the book, that was one of the most satisfying professional experiences of my career, Mm -hmm. because ultimately I think what we were able to do through all of that tension and a lot, not all of it focused on me, but, you know, fair amount or focused on the white male president who had appointed. So you were the right person in the end to be in that role in a way. I was a good person in to be in that role with Dennis and other people in yeah. the room that really made it work eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you created, yeah. I mean, there maybe were 16 that's... of us in this committee. Uh-huh. It's, you know, it's uh, I mean, I really do believe some of the fundamental principles of, you know, conflict is an opportunity if it's used well and that there really is growth and change and all of that. Yeah. So, okay, so just to to close and there may be something you want to say to close, but I do want to end with, uh, you know, some hope, inspiration for women, particularly because I am really interested in I think COVID has really set a lot of women back all over the planet. And yeah. I think who we are, and I'm being very broad here, matters. I think our stepping into our leadership matters. Our feeling confident matters. Our voices matter. Our not being cowed by violence matters. Yeah. And I don't know if you. So I don't know if you have any words of tips for women, or words of encouragement, or thoughts uh, in terms of what you think. Um, basically, what I'm looking to convey is that it matters. <laughs> 
Um, yeah. Well, I agree with you completely that how we feel about ourselves, how we show up, what our aspirations are and our expectations for ourselves um, are critical determinants of what happens, right? And it doesn't mean that we can fight the structures that be, but they matter. Um, and I, you know, I um, particularly run the diversity work that I do, I've become less and less enamored with interpersonal work because, you know, that's what the diversity field is mostly about is like me being aware of my own implicit bias or my own, you know, whatever, and being more respectful towards you. And I think that's important, but it doesn't change the structures. And ultimately what the work that we do in institutions now is about changing those incentive structures and the critical importance of that. Let me give you one example. I mean, I do think that there are bright spots in that area that there are real things changing, not just being more respectful to each other because that can be a ploy, but really changing the structures. And here's an example. There's a movement in the UK and in Europe um, called the Athena Leadership mm -hmm. Movement, and yeah. it is about women in STEM. And it's a, it's a movement in higher education that institutions need to kind of become more inclusive and more aware and do a lot of important work. And what, what, what is the game changer there is that their versions of, the, of NSF start to tie their funding to these organizations actually meeting certain criteria. In other words, if you're not respectful and inclusive of different genders, um, you're not gonna get money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that has changed the game there. And there, it's happening in the US, there's a group called AAAS, which is the American uh, Academic Something Something Society. Um, it's an association they have a movement called Sea Change, and it is not just uh, gender, it's gender and diversity, other types of diversity. Um, and they too have started a certification program where a university, and Brown University recently was a pilot on this, um, tries to, you know, it's, it's, it's like um, when you build new buildings these days and you try to get sustainability, um, mm. uh, like LEED certification, you get you know, bronze or gold or mm. platinum. Well, this will be a kind of inclusive inclusion uh, certification that will have the same kind of levels. And the goal of this group is to get NSF to buy into um, limiting funding to institutions that have these certifications. If that happens, then real things change. Yeah, <laughs> once again, then, follow follow the money. Follow the mm -hmm. money. And you know, again, it's just one example yeah, yeah, yeah. of one of the structures yeah. that have promoted patriarchy in STEM and in universities yeah. and et cetera. And I have to say, you know, one of the things I'm at the Earth Institute, I'm on I'm faculty at the Earth Institute mm -hmm. as well. And Alex Halliday, who is came in from there, came from the UK. He was at Cambridge and came here and was very aware of this. And, and he had a lunch with me the first week he was there and he said, why are we so behind on this, mm -hmm. on this agenda? Mm -hmm. Let's go. Mm -hmm. And so he's been a clear champion from the get-go because he's seen like what's coming mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, A, it's the morally right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And B, we're going to lose all our funding. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so let's go. Yeah. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. I think there are those kinds of important structural changes that are shifting. They're not happening at the speed that we would all hope they would happen, but they're shifting. And those will be game changers in terms of inclusion for women and inclusion for other marginalized groups, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and I totally agree with you in terms of 
the unit of change is not necessarily the individual. I mean, when I when I have seen getting very large contentious groups together in a room and using the right process, yeah, amazing things can happen. It's a very yeah. it's a very no, different absolutely. kind yeah. of thing. So yeah. listen, I don't know if there's anything else you want to say, but I I am watching the time and I want to just be uh, respectful of it. And um, no, I appreciate the conversation and the investigation. You know, I. Um, I spent the last three years working on political polarization in the country, which certainly has a gender role and it's wrapped up in misogyny and racism. Um, but, uh, but this book is about trying to bring down the vitriol, the American psychoses that we're in and offer people some actionable evidence-based actions that they can do in their lives if they're fed up and just want to kind of bring things down. Um, not everybody's there, you know, people are still enraged and engaged in the fight, um, but more and more the middle is exhausted and feels dis dysfunctional. So maybe I should end with, I'm not gonna say, are you hopeful? Because that yes, no question is never, never mind that, but what, <laughs> what makes you hopeful? the future. What makes me hopeful is that in, in particularly in writing this book uh, over the past three years now, I've spent a lot of time studying who's doing what around this. And the reality is that there are thousands of groups across the country and in all in various sectors that are doing fantastic bridge building work of very different, some, some with the media, some actually bringing you know, the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress is within Congress itself, and they're a, a, a bipartisan committee that's really doing work on depolarizing the structures around Congress. There's media, One Small Step hmm. is a great thing that StoryCorps is doing. And, you know, so there are, in this time of crisis, because of political polarization and COVID and racial injustice and, you know, sexism, in this very unsettled time of ours, there is a resurgence and a, a, an energy and a sense of urgency around issues of justice and inclusion, but also doing it in ways that are not vilifying everybody on that side. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think so that's what's been hopeful to me is just learning about all the extraordinary things that are, people are doing. And some of these are these are brilliant people mm -hmm. doing like mm -hmm. there's a woman named Neelan Parker who's at Princeton University who used to be Obama's like HUD chief of staff or something, who has a project called Bridging Divides Initiative. And all- Wait, what's your, what's your name? Her name is Neelan Parker. I may, I, I don't know, no, maybe not. Uh, and she's a, at Princeton, she has a center there mm -hmm. and they uh, have this Bridging Divides Initiative. If you go to their website, there's a map of America. And what they've been doing is gathering bridge builders everywhere across the country, locating them. So you can go and check, look in your region look at your county or your town and see who's doing what where. Um, so it's just a beginning recognition of the fact that there is extraordinary work being done in sectors and in communities across this country. There is an infrastructure or an ecosystem that we can tap into and we can build. Mm -hmm. And that's where I find hope. Yeah, cool. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. And it's really nice to see you again. And Great to see yeah. you too. Thanks for having me on. I look forward to sharing it. So thanks for listening. I hope you got a lot from this episode. I, I sure did. And thank you again, Peter. 
Be sure to check out Peter's new book, The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. I'm guessing you can get it anywhere you find books. And if you'd like to stay connected to me and you're not already a subscriber, please subscribe to my Women Negotiation Empower list, the Peace Building Podcast list, or both at susancoleman.global. I've slowed the process of delivering negotiation programs to women and creating podcasts uh, because I'm birthing a book called Women Negotiation Empower, Dismantling Patriarchy One Negotiation at a Time. The process is definitely living up to my version of Murphy's Law, that everything takes longer than you think, but I'm committed and trying to wrap this up as quickly as possible, so stay tuned. Meanwhile, I'm doing individual negotiation or conflict-related coaching for women, if you're interested. I'm increasingly doing speaking engagements around topics covered in the book, like How We Negotiate Adds Up, Women Negotiation and Power, What Could a Post-Patriarchal Workplace Look Like, and How Would It Affect the Future of Work? What's the big gender negotiation going on on the planet? How Patriarchy Affects Our Negotiation Batnas as Women, the long, long, long story of our past. Uh, What's at the heart of salary negotiations for women and other topics which I could shape with you. Of course, I continue to do organizational conflict work and intercultural negotiation training for organizations like the IMF, the UN, NASA, and others. So if I can be of service to you on any of those fronts, uh, please let me know. And stay tuned to future episodes of the Peacebuilding Podcast, From Conflict to Common Ground. And thanks for joining us. Thank you.